we started fundraising from really just our friends and family, people we knew kind of in the Austin technology community. We launched our hedge fund on October 1st of 2017. We launched with, I want to say one and a half or $2 million. Launching a fund is, look, it's unintuitive because of like all the weird legal stuff. Once you get past that though, it looks just like a startup. Our, our launch was incredibly unremarkable. We really didn't know what we were doing, but we started showing up to the crypto events and conferences, which are all over the world. And uh, that's kind of how Multicoin got off the ground. A lot of luck, a lot of hard work, and we were just in the right place at the right time. We stand today. The Business Method. With a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now... Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 1234567891010 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. 
Kyle Samani is one of the founders of Multicoin Capital, a thesis-driven investment firm that invests in cryptocurrencies, tokens, and blockchain companies. Multicoin manages a hedge fund and a venture fund investing across both public and private markets. Kyle previously founded Pristine, a health IT startup that raised more than $5 million in venture capital, which was acquired by Upskill. He raised a $75 million fund from mainstream investors, including Andreessen Horowitz and founding PayPal COO David Sachs, to invest in cryptocurrency projects being backed by some of the most prominent startups in the industry. As a former engineer, Kyle leads technical thesis formation and diligence at Multicoin Capital. He is the more outwards-facing partner, owning relationships with entrepreneurs and other investors. He is widely recognized in a crypto ecosystem for writing and system-level analysis, and he's on the podcast today. Kyle, how are you doing today, man? Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm having a great day. Good. And uh, you're in the same area as I am in Austin, Texas, just a, a little bit away from one another. But um, I'm glad to have you on the show. I'm fascinated by one, the crypto world and all that is evolving from the crypto world. When Bitcoin, when I first heard about Bitcoin back in 2000, I think it was 14 and Bitcoin was, I think, around six or eight hundred dollars at the time. I knew it was going to be something that was really phenomenal, but I had no idea how in-depth it would go into decentralized finance lending and all the different avenues and, and hedge funds and, and VC type of areas that have evolved from that. And so first to start off, Kyle, if you don't mind explaining to the listeners in layman terms, as layman as possible, what is Multicoin Capital and what, you, what do you guys do? Multicoin is an investment firm. We manage a few different funds. Um, most investment firms tend to kind of manage one type of fund structure. So for example, most venture funds like Andreessen Horowitz tend to predominantly raise just venture funds. Mm -hmm. um, and they have a series of those that they raise and invest out of. We're a little bit unique in that we manage both a hedge fund and a venture fund. That's not totally um, unprecedented, but I'd say is uncommon, especially for a firm of our age. Um, we're three and a half years old. Um, but we have kind of two primary vehicles that we manage, um, a hedge fund and a venture fund. Our venture fund looks like any other venture fund you would expect, you know, 10 year um, horizon. And we, you know, invest in early stage risky things, hoping obviously that we'll make a very large return on our money. Um, some of those things we invest in will go to zero or, we'll, you know, lose money. But, you know, at the portfolio level, obviously the hope is that we, we produce really good returns. Um, that vehicle invests in both equity and in tokens. Um, and I guess we'll probably touch on equity and tokens mm -hmm. together or later in this um, session. Um, and then we manage a hedge fund, um, which you know, manages primarily assets that are already liquid and trading. Um, so these assets you know, in the crypto markets have price discovery happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we have a portfolio of those assets as well that we manage in general terms, are the investable universe for our hedge fund is basically what's on coinmarketcap.com. So that, that's what we do is we manage these two funds. We obviously have a lot of portfolio companies that we work with, some of which we have in our hedge fund, some we have in our venture fund, some we have in both funds. And we obviously help them with whatever problems they have, anything they, they need advice on. And um, yeah, that's kind of the core of what we do. Our team is 12 people today across the Austin area, the New York area, and the Shanghai area. Uh, we'll be, at, we'll probably finish this calendar year at 15 or 16 people. 
And um, yeah, that's really the core of our business. It's pretty straightforward. We, we manage money. Okay, easy. You, you guys started in 2016, is that correct? 2017. 2017. And I'm curious where the idea came to create a company like this. I can imagine I have some, some ideas, but I'd like to hear from you. It's, it's, it's not a new business idea, but it's with a new asset class. Did you think of this idea like, hey, let's start some hedge, hedge funds using cryptocurrency and managing those funds? Where did it all start? Yeah. So yeah, I heard of Bitcoin back in 2011, 2012. I used to be a pretty avid uh, reader on a forum called Slashdot, which I think is actually where Bitcoin kind of first broke out was on Slashdot. I think I remember seeing the original post back in the day. I was in college at the time, although I did not appreciate the, the magnitude of, of what it represented. Um, and I, you know, I started buying some Bitcoins in 2013 and that kind of that first bubble back then, but didn't really appreciate, appreciate it and I never got into it. Um, in 2013, I launched my last startup, which was Pristine. Um, and so Pristine kind of consumed most of my time and energy over that period. I ended up exiting Pristine at the end of 15. And so in early 2016, it was kind of time to figure out what I wanted to do next, next with my life. And um, I was pretty certain I didn't want to stay in healthcare. I was kind of sick of healthcare and jaded, jaded from it. So I was looking around. One of the areas I started kind of exploring was fintech. And, um, you know, Stripe was already around and Stripe was already a pretty big company, even by early 2016. Um, and I remember I started playing with some of Stripe's APIs and looking through the documentation and I, I learned pretty quickly, pretty quickly what the limits of Stripe's APIs were. Um, and I was like, okay, I understand what this is. Uh, probably a few weeks after that, I ended up discovering Ethereum. Um, Ethereum had just launched maybe six or nine months prior to that. And, um, I was like, oh, this is interesting. What do they mean smart contracts and programmable money? Um, I was like, I thought Stripe was programmable money. Mm -hmm. um, so I started kind of playing around with those early building blocks um, that represented Ethereum and looking at the APIs and, and the documentation. And I realized that Ethereum was infinitely more extensible than Stripe. And I was like, you know what? This really is the future of, of money and, and finance and value. That, that struck me pretty early on as being pretty substantial and pretty important. So over the course of 2016, once that kind of dawned on me, I, I started kind of fiddling around with the crypto ecosystem, reading and learning about the history of all of these things, diving into the history of Bitcoin, which kind of pulled me into the history of, of, of monetary policy and economics, which I had never really cared for before. Obviously started getting into the history of cryptography and, and cypherpunks and all of those things. And then started kind of learning about the rest of the crypto ecosystem, which, you know, in the middle of 2016 was, was you know, almost non-existent. But you had stuff like Augur, Zcash launched at the end of 16, Monero was around. There were a handful of other things that were around at the time. And uh, I was really fascinated by it. You know, I, my, I started investing my own money and, you know, 2016 was a great year for crypto. The market was kept going up generally. And by the end of 2016, I, I at this point put basically hundred percent of my net worth into crypto. Um, and, you know, I had now developed a full-time 40 hour a week internet hobby. Um, <laughs> I wasn't trading. Um, but I was fully invested and I was just reading and learning on the online on the forums. Um, Polychain launched at in late part of 16. I think they launched in maybe October of 16. And I remember observing Polychain's launch and I was like, man, these guys, these guys have balls. Like this again, the ecosystem is really, really immature. And they're like trying to run real money. Um, and sometime around May of 17, I, I realized I was like, you know, what? I don't care how immature this ecosystem is. If Polychain can manage money, so can we. Um, and so at that point, uh, Tushar and I uh, made the decision to launch Multicoin. 
Tushar and I met uh, at NYU when I was in college, and we, we developed a very good friendship in college, bonding over our shared kind of passion at the intersection of software and finance. Um, we both did health IT startups after college and both kind of got jaded by healthcare and both were kind of pretty drawn to this idea of Ethereum and programmable money. So in May of 17, we decided to launch Multicoin. Um, we had no idea how to launch a fund, mm-hmm. um, but we knew we wanted to launch a fund. There were kind of a few things that we, we thought through at that time. One was, what are really our strengths? And we knew that our strengths were, were just kind of deep analytical thinking and reasoning. Um, we knew that we loved writing um, and explaining our thinking and our, our blog has become one of the more well-read investment blogs in crypto. Um, and we knew we were going to do a lot of writing and analysis on a, a blog and just kind of copy the Andreessen model. Like we didn't innovate there at all. We, we just copied what a lot of other venture firms have done before us. And then so we, so anyways, we, we kind of realized our core skill sets were analytical reasoning and communications. And those two things lent themselves very well towards being investors. So made the decision to launch a fund, had no idea how to launch a fund. We, you know, got in touch with some lawyer, you know, called around some of our friends from, from Wall Street and, you know, got in touch with some lawyers. You know, the, the bill to launch a fund with like a big law firm is 7,500K. Mm-hmm. We did not want to spend 7,500K. So we ended up finding some cheaper lawyers. I think we got it done for 13 or 14 or 15K. Nice. Which it, 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 was a, it was the right decision at the time, but in hindsight created a lot of problems because we structured everything incorrectly. But that's okay. We got off the ground um, and then started, you know, put a, a fundraising deck together. And we started fundraising from really just our friends and family people we knew kind of in the Austin technology community. We launched our hedge fund on October 1st of 2017. We launched with, I want to say one and a half or $2 million, mm-hmm. some, something in that range, no more than two and a half, somewhere between one and a half and two and a half. And we launched, launched the fund. We really didn't know what we were doing, but we started showing up to the crypto events and conferences, which are all over the world. Flew to Shanghai that September, flew to a whole bunch of events, started meeting the community started uh, writing on our blog, which uh, our essay started to get circulated pretty widely, much more quickly than we anticipated. Obviously, we're managing a pool of capital and you know putting on positions that we liked and didn't like. And yeah, just, just getting ingrained in the crypto community. And uh, that's kind of how Multicoin got off the ground. A lot of luck, a lot of hard work, and we were just in the right place at the right time. When you, when you launch a fund, I don't know anything about this. What does the process of that launch look like? So... Yeah, so uh, securities laws, as it pertains to fundraising for a fund specifically, mm-hmm. are quite onerous. I don't remember all the names of the exact rules and regulations and classifications for the stuff, but there are actually his, for most of the last seventy years, it has been uh, not permitted to like market a fund generally, meaning like on a website, advertisements of any platform. That's been not allowed. Mm-hmm. You may remember back in 20, I believe it was 2012, the Obama administration passed uh, a law, I think they called it the Jobs Act. Um, and it had a whole bunch of provisions around startup fundraising. And like they, they made it theoretically easier for startups to raise money. They also actually, as part of that provision, made it easier to launch a new fund as well. And one of the provisions in there actually allowed for general solicitation for fundraising purposes. Okay. So um, that did get introduced in 2012. Very, very, very few funds are registered and classified to support general solicitation. And I remember most of the law firms we spoke to, you know, back in 2017 told us, do not do that. It's just unnecessary. 
you're not going to actually get any real money anyways from doing that. So, so just don't bother and, and draw attention from the SEC. So we did launch the fund without the general solicitation provision. We have since modified it and have added it in, um, not because we're actually trying to generally solicit. We really aren't. Um, but just as a CYA measure, because we do a lot of PR and press uh, work, so j- just to kind of cover ourselves. Mm-hmm. But yeah, launching, putting up a website and advertising to people is not an effective way to raise money. Um, you don't want to be raising money $1,000 or $10,000 at a time. Right. You really don't want to be doing anything less than 50K to kind of get a fund off the ground. So yeah, we just started calling our friends and family. And like, that was, I mean, that, that was it. It's, people think it's some magical process. It's really... Who do you know that you think has cash mm-hmm. that like will take you halfway seriously? And like, can you get their attention for a 30 minute meeting? <laughs> like, it's, it's like <laughs> that, the vast it. majority of businesses, how they start in the entire world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our launch was incredibly unremarkable. <laughs> well, you, you're getting remarkable results, right? So that's, what's important. We, yeah. We've been super fortunate on, on how things have turned out when we could have never anticipated that, that things would go the way they have. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Launching a fund is, look, it's unintuitive because of like all the weird legal stuff. Right. Once you get past that though, it looks just like a startup. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Any thoughts on like at first you were getting quotes from attorneys, 75K to 100K, and then you decided or to go with some other attorneys that got it down to about 13K. What was the like process or logic behind that? Because maybe that can overlap to some business savvy skills. How, how did you analyze these attorneys? How did you make sure that they were going to be as good to work with you as opposed to the 75 to hundred K attorneys? Um, I mean, our thought process here was not very complicated. We like didn't have much money. So we were like, you know, being cheap and avoiding all expenses. Uh-huh. So that was, that was, you know, I would say 80% of what drove the decision. Uh, the other 20% was, I mean, the big law firms, didn't, they didn't take us seriously. Mm. When two ran, like Tushar and I were 27 at the time, when we called them, they were like, who are you? And, and you know, like we didn't, we didn't have any background running money before or anything. And they were like crypto, like this is weird and crazy. Like right. they weren't eager to work with us and they were too expensive. So it was just very obvious that like we shouldn't spend our time working with them. Any- I don't, to be clear, I don't fault them at all. It's, it's not like right. yeah. I blame them. It's just like, we weren't a good use of their time and we couldn't afford them. So like, it's yeah. fine. Any, any difference in the regulations uh, with the fund because you guys are crypto focused as opposed to other types of hedge funds? So the one word answer is no. The slightly more nuanced answer is hedge funds actually aren't like a thing as far as the law is concerned. Hedge fund okay. is a hedge fund used to mean something reasonably specific. Um, which meant that, you know, you put on hedged positions, um, as the name would imply. Over the years, uh, last, let's say, 20, 20, 30 years, there have been more and more different types of hedge fund strategies that have done more and more and more weird things across more and more weird assets and verticals, such that to, to, to the point that today the word hedge fund means almost nothing. If, if it were to mean anything, it would probably mean investing in liquid assets where investors can redeem their money on a relatively short time horizon. And that's probably all it means at this point. What's interesting I've also learned about funds is, um, again, there, there are norms about kind of the terms that funds have. For example, fees are like, you know, relatively normal, like two and 20 is kind of standard for most, most hedge funds or at least most crypto funds anyways. 
And there's, there's like, for example, that's like a very straightforward norm. And there's other pretty normal provisions, things like high watermark accounting and other things like that. But one thing I've learned is you can have any terms you want in a fund's documents. And as long as investors agree to them, like, great. Right. Um, all a fund really is, is a contract between the managers of the fund and the investors in the fund. And uh, you can write a contract to say whatever you want. I know this kind of sounds like pretty obvious thing to say, but mm, I feel like there's, my assumption was there was relatively rigid bounds on how you can structure a fund and how you cannot structure a fund. Mm. And I, I would say one thing we've learned over the last few years is anything is on the table. Now I will say if, if you're you know a first time fund manager, the more not standard your terms are, uh, the harder it's going to be to raise money. Right. You know, that that's that's almost certainly true. Did you keep your terms pretty standard then? Yes. So our yeah. all of our core vehicles are quite vanilla in terms of the core the core terms. Yes. Okay. And you've raised is that seventy five million? Correct. For uh, we've raised a lot more than that. <laughs> okay. <since then. laughs> okay. Um, can you talk about maybe the process of raising that type of money? And I know that you started out friends and family, call who you know, have a conversation. So maybe the, 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 the steps in that process of growth. And then was there ever a tipping point? Like you got one investor to come in and it kind of changed everything for you guys. So we launched in October 1st of 17. Mm -hmm. uh, we started writing our, our, our blog. You know, I started being very active on Twitter. We were quite intentional with Twitter of, of being divisive in, in, within the crypto community, well, where the goal was to get attention, not to make friends. That was the right thing to optimize for at the time. Today, it's probably no longer the right thing to optimize for, but, but as a new fund, it probably was and was quite effective. Um, and we wrote very thoughtful blog posts, all of which are still on our website, and you can click back to all of the oldest ones all the way back to mm -hmm. you know, or, um, early to mid-17 or mid to late 17. They're all there. And, uh, you know, other people started reading our blog posts and they started, a lot of, especially a lot of folks in Silicon Valley were like, Hey, this is really good and thoughtful. And one of the blog posts I wrote, I don't know, it was probably in October, November of 17, went really viral within the crypto community. I don't remember which one, but it, it kind of felt like a thing that everyone in crypto kind of ended up reading it. Um, mm -hmm. and was like, Hey, this is, you know, good thinking for how to think about value capture, um, and defensibility in these token systems. Um, and then I started working on, and, and that went around, uh, I remember I started getting a bunch of inbounds at that point from a bunch of venture capitalists in Silicon Valley who were like, Hey, this is super useful. Uh, you know, we'd love to just jump on a phone and chat and, you know, just get to know you. And people just wanted to like learn and share notes and, and be friendly. And one of those introduct, one of those phone conversations led to an introduction to Chris Dixon, who, uh, is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz and who ended up launching, um, their crypto fund later in 2018. So I got introduced to Chris. Chris had read quite a number of my essays already and was like, yeah, I love your stuff. It's super thoughtful. And um, I ended up, you know, I was in San Francisco a couple weeks later. was like, hey, you want to grab coffee? So grabbed coffee with Chris. And he's like, oh, by the way, you know, are you taking new money? And I was like, yeah, you know, of course our fund is open. Um, and so Chris ended up investing. And then Chris and um, Mark Andreessen, they kind of invest together in a lot of like other funds. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they, they both agreed to kind of invest together in, in multi-coin right around the same time we got introduced to David Sachs. Um, David Sachs runs, he's the co-founder and CEO of PayPal and, um, you know, now runs craft ventures and, you know, they were kind of in the same similar boat and they ended up investing at that time. 
Uh, and then just a couple months after that, we ended up meeting uh, Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures. Fred, well, I, I went on a podcast in February or March of, of 18, um, a podcast called Epicenter, which is like a very crypto focused podcast. And I woke up one Saturday morning and looked at my Twitter and I had a DM from Fred Wilson. And I was like, holy cow, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's like, hey, loved your podcast episode. Would love to chat sometime. And uh, ended up meeting up with Fred Wilson. And then Unit Square Ventures ended up investing you know, shortly thereafter. Meanwhile, kind of all over the court, this all kind of happened over the first half of 2018. We were you know, building a brand via our blog. We were attending all of the events. I, I think I was on the road in 2018 for 125 or 130 days. Mm -hmm. I was on the road for probably about a third of that calendar year. And almost all of which was work. I took almost no vacation that year. And yeah, so just met everyone in person in the crypto community, did the thought leadership via the blog. We were very communicative with our investors. Um, we wrote monthly letters and, and you know, we did monthly calls and Q&A with them and people just appreciated what we were doing. Um, so we were able to raise money and, and money just kept flowing into the fund. I mean, you know, rate was call it at peak at that time. Like I think our best month ever was six or seven million came in in one month. And um, yeah, so we just kind of kept, kept iterating and, and working and kind of built a little brand for ourselves. By the second half of 2018, new money basically stopped flowing into crypto, like almost entirely. Um, I think in the second half of 18, we had probably several months in a row where there were zero net new, net new dollars in flowing in. What was the cause of that, Kyle? Oh, uh, well, the crypto prices were crashing and, and going nowhere. Okay. People were no longer interested in crypto <laughs> is the simple answer. Uh -huh. And, um, and yeah, so no one was, you know, and we weren't aggressively trying to raise money. We've actually really never aggressively tried to raise money. We've always kind of done the, the brand marketing thing, which has been super effective. And, and, you know, when people decide, Hey, I want to invest in crypto and I want to invest in an actively managed fund. Like we let people come to that conclusion on their own. Once they come to that conclusion on their own, they start saying, okay, what are the good funds out there? And like, there's no objective way to answer that question. Um, but obviously people just kind of ask around. And we were fortunate that we had built up a brand profile um, through our blog, through some of the investments we'd made, through announcing some of these well-known other investors as investors in our fund. Um, and so inevitably a meaningful percentage of people who wanted to get into crypto would hear our name and they would just email us or call us. And that, that's really how we've raised um, almost all of the money we've ever raised, um, if, if not 100%, close to 100% of the dollars we've raised have come basically via that mechanism or some derivative of that mechanism. Um, and so it's been super effective strategy. Um, and uh, yeah, fundraising slowed down end of 2018, never really picked up uh, until the middle of 20. Uh, uh -huh. I mean, look, like a little bit, bit, bits and pieces would come in here and there. Um, over the course of 19 and the first part of 20, but, but fundraising did not pick up for us in earnest, uh, until middle of 20, um, probably the thing that, that caused it to begin to reaccelerate was, uh, I think when Paul Tudor Jones went on, on TV and said, you know, uh, Bitcoin's going to be here to stay. It's future digital gold, whatever, whatever. This was like May or June of 20. Um, and that kind of sparked and rekindled a lot of interest. And then it got really crazy after May, excuse me, after November of, of last year. Um, I think probably the thing that kicked that off was Bitcoin breaking 20K, which was the, the previous all-time high. And then uh, PayPal announcing they were going to do, you know, roll out crypto to 350 million users around the world. Mm -hmm. Since then, it really hasn't slowed down. 
And so it's, it's been just incredibly hectic since then. Were you guys worried between 2018 and 2020 that, you know, no, no funding was coming in or new, no new investment money? Were you thinking, oh, what's happening? Is this going to work? Or were you comfortable? Yeah, we, we weren't really concerned that crypto wasn't going to work. We, we, we were as bullish as ever. We, we, we've learned that, like, you can't force fundraising. Like, I'm a, I'm a pretty, like, I'm a person, like, when I put my mind to something, I get it done. Mm-hmm. I don't really care what's in the way. Uh, but one thing I've learned with fundraising is like, you can't people make and you can't get them to invest. And um, so we have really never spent time trying to outbound. If you were trying to outbound over that period, you would have become completely demoralized because your 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 you know failure rate would have been close to 100%. Fortunately, we never did that. <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we just focused on managing the fund and keeping our keeping the lights on. Um, yeah, we were able to, to stay alive, thank God, over that period. And, you know, once things started to pick up again, like it's, it's been great. And we're fortunate now we have a real track record. We've got, you know, three and a half years of, of performance under our belts and, um, you know, a real brand and a real team. Um, and so now when new investors do want to get into crypto, like it's, it's, you know, when they look us up, they're like, okay, they feel safe and comfortable investing. You know, investing in us in 2017 was, you know, weird and scary. Right. Um, investing in us today feels, you know, buttoned up and institutional, yeah. uh, but it, it just takes time to get there that, that you can't accelerate that process too much. I think you said, Kyle, back in the early 20 teens, you invested a hundred percent of your net worth into crypto. What gave you the confidence to invest all of your net worth into crypto that early? And if you're open to it, sharing how much of your net worth that was at the time. Yeah, I mean, like at the time, I didn't even, well, I own my, my old condo I used to live in. But I mean, excluding my primary residence, 100% of my net worth was in crypto. And that still is true today. I mean, 99%, but like, whatever, you know, close to 100. I've never really gotten out, and I don't intend to. The reason I developed the confidence is, I remember, so I went to, I went to college, I'm 31 years old today. It's my first birthday? year of college was, I'm 31. Happy my birthday. first year of college was 2008 when I was 18. Uh-huh. And I remember I got an iPhone in 2008. iPhone came out in 2007. I got my iPhone in 2008. I remember the early app store. I remember discovering the early app. I, lo- I opened the app store every day to see what Apple featured. I was reading TechCrunch every day because um, there was new apps coming out. Like by 2010, 2011, like it was so obvious to me that like the iPhone was the most important thing on the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. I, I remember clearly thinking that I had, you know, $5,000, $10,000 to my name. And I put every, every penny I could spare into two year call options on Apple. Um, so I bought long dated call options on Apple, ended up turning, I don't know, 10 K and like 200 K or something. It was, it was a phenomenal trade. Nice. Um, and the reason I did it was because I was, it was so obvious to me, like even in 2010, people were still arguing on the internet about Blackberry versus iPhone. Like I, rem- <laughs> I remember, Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I was like, you've got to be kidding. Like, this is a joke. And, and it was one of those things that I was like, and I sat down with Tushar and we were like, and Tushar was just as bullish Apple as I was. And we were like, what are all of the ways in which we're wrong? And we enumerated everything that we thought could, could possibly cause A, global smartphone growth to like slow down in a meaningful way and B, like cause Android or BlackBerry to, to meaningfully reduce Apple's market share. 
And we were, we w went through every scenario analysis we could come up with. And we were like, dude, these guys are going to knock it out of the park. And so we were like, okay, all in Apple. And that was, that ended up being right. I ended up doing the same thing with Google glass, which my, my startup in 2013 was, was built on Google glass. I didn't end up putting literally all of my own cash in, but I put all of my hundred percent of my time in, which is actually more important than cash. And. Uh, I ended up being wrong about that one, <laughs> but I thought, I thought glasses were going to, were going to change the world, um, which I, I think they probably will in 10 or 20 years. Um, but, but that, that's turns out to be a very hard set of problems. Mm -hmm. But I remember then the feeling of being right and being wrong. Right. So I had one big hit of being feeling right and being right. I had another set of feeling right and being wrong. Um, and when I looked at Ethereum in 2016, and it, 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 I didn't go all in like in March or April of 16 when I kind of first started learning about it. It probably wasn't until the latter part of 16, probably Q4 of 16, when I, I was I realized, look, I'm spending you know 30, 40, 50 hours a week on the internet learning about this stuff. I had been watching it for six months already at this point. I could see the growth of developer talent. Like I could see the ecosystem evolving at a really interesting pace. And I knew that it was... It was liquid, which unlike starting my Google Glass company, which was not liquid, um, this was liquid. So I knew I could get out even if I was wrong or ended up being wrong on some long, long horizon. And, and I saw how misunderstood it was. And, and I understood the core thesis of programmable money. And I, I thought to myself and I said, you know, what am I going to regret more five or 10 years from now? Diverse, like going all in and losing that 50 to 75% of my net worth, whatever, if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. um, or what if this goes up 100x from here and I only get 20% of that appreciate or 40% of that instead of the full thing. And I was like, yeah, like the answer was, was obvious to me. I was 26 years old. I, I had no real expenses. I had no family, no obligation, no, no dog or kids. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, my parents were, I'm fortunate my parents were healthy and together. And I was like, okay, like, why shouldn't I swing as hard as I can? This seems asymmetric. And so, you know, went all in on crypto uh, and really haven't looked back ever since. I, I'd like to ask you, what are, what are some of the most exciting aspects of multi-coin that, that you feel either potential investors or, or the public should know about your company? I, I mean, I, th I think the, 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 core of what makes our firm work is a handful of things. But I think the most important is really, really strong focus on analyzing market structures. Mm -hmm. I'm a very analytical person. Um, there's different ways to invest, different time horizons. If you look at how most venture investors invest, there's kind of a common refrain. There's three types of venture investing. Um, there's investing in teams, investing in products, and investing in markets. Uh, and multi-coin invests in markets. Um, if you, you know, were to attend one of our investment committee meetings, we go, we'll go on for you know half an hour, hour at a time on one particular subject, and we will just come up talking about a market. Who are the players? What are their motivations? How big is it? What are actually the network effects? Um, do the customers actually like the existing products and services? Are the customers being served? We spend 
very, very little time discussing the actual current product of the company that we're, you know, or whatever it is we're looking to invest in. I'd say that's probably 5% or less spent on the current product. And similarly, we probably spend only five or 10% of our time talking about the team building it. Um, our view is that, and this, this actually is a good quote from Mark Andreessen, where he talks about, you know, do you invest in, in product market or, or team? And he says team is, excuse me, he says market is the most important because in the right markets, the market itself will pull the best product from a sufficiently capable team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is, I, I very deeply agree with this view. Um, was Travis Kalanick the best entrepreneur in the world to start Uber? No, he was certainly qualified and he had a good background, but like he wasn't the best guy in the world to start Uber. Yeah. He had to be sufficiently qualified. Um, and he had to know what product to build, but the market is actually what mattered. Um, and you can kind of run a similar analysis for every you know big company out there and, and the same logic always holds true. And so we spend, you know, we're, we're really, really analytical, look, understanding the nature of competitive dynamics in a market, really understanding our customers currently being served by whatever you know products or services are currently available, and then really understanding, well, what's the wedge? Because if these new guys who have you know very little money, very little brand recognition, right? They have very few resources. They claim they're going to you know change the future of this market, whatever. You always have to have some insight that the big guys don't have, mm-hmm. right? Like by definition, that has to be true, and and really validating the nature of that insight, which again, in almost all cases, is an insight about the nature of the market itself. Sometimes it's like a technology breakthrough, and it makes that possible, um, but that's actually less common than you would think. In almost all cases, it's understanding. Uh, why is a why is there a hole in the market structure, and how can you capitalize on that um, to kind of reshape a market? Um, and that's really what we do. That's where we spend almost all of our time as a firm, and I like to think we do it well. Can you take us through the analyzation and, and decision making process, Kyle, of what you decide to invest in? Why you think this is going to be a good investment for MultiCoin and and your investors? Yeah. So I mean like our, our process is quite similar to uh, m- most venture capital firms. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'd say we do almost nothing differently, um, at least at kind of a conceptual level. Um, our biggest difference is probably we focus more on market than most others and less on team and product. Okay. Um, but beyond that, I mean, like the key things we look for, number one is TAM, size of the market. Like, okay, like one thing as an entrepreneur you cannot control for is actually how big is the market. You can pick which markets to go after, mm-hmm. but in most cases you can't cause customers to just spend more money trying to solve this problem. Right. Um, like that that amount of you know pain in the world, and then the willingness of customers to spend money solving that problem um, is is for the most part not um, a variable you can adjust as an entrepreneur. So. Um, entrepreneurs are going after some market, we, you know, we're really trying to understand how big is this market? And the bigger the market, um, the more willing we are to let other things slip. Um, because if you are right, right, like let's, let's just say if two, two startups, one, they both have a 1% probability of success. Um, well, if one of them is going after a market that's $100 million and one of them is going after a market that's $100 billion, then actually you should be willing to pay 1,000 times higher price for the second startup than the first startup. Because in the event of success, 
you produce a 1000 X, you know, greater, greater outcome. Mm -hmm. I realize this math is all very, it's too overly simplistic and assessing these probabilities is, is never clean. Um, you can't ever measure these kinds of things with precision, but, but directionally market size, um, is super important because if, if the core thesis is right, um, the, the returns are, are just outstanding. Um, so we spend a lot of time digging into market size and really verifying, well, they, they say it's worth a billion uh, market size, a hundred billion dollars, but is it really a hundred billion or is it really 1 billion? Right. Um, and really verifying that claim. Um, and then really understanding the nature of network effects and moats. Um, many things in crypto, I'd say crypto things generally are subject to network effects. This is not universally true, but most things that have a token in them are by definition about connecting supply and demand um, for some product or service in some way. Uh, and that means that sounds kind of like a marketplace and marketplaces tend to have some network effects to some degree. Um, but really understanding the nature of those network effects is very important. Uh, for example, one thing we've learned is that uh, exchanges, spot exchanges, do not have network effects um, at all. Um, this is very counterintuitive. Saying Coinbase, for example, and Kraken and Gemini don't have network effects uh, appears to be a, a nonsensical statement on the surface. But we've come to the conclusion that those are not network effect businesses, um, which is a whole separate conversation. Right. But really kind of picking apart the the flywheel and the things that comprise network effect and again the stronger the network effect um the more excited we, we tend to get um and then understanding the wedge right like how are these people going to get into the market what's the hole that is there and then how are they going to capitalize on that to actually get this thing in the wild and get that flywheel spinning and if, if we believe all three of those things um are there then you know that basically we'll pull the trigger at that point. There's a bunch of secondary considerations like you know the background of the team and stuff. You know, can they actually ship a product? Um, those are those are relevant, but um, the really three things are the size of the market, the network effects, and the wedge. What do you think? The other like other entrepreneurs out there that are they're running their businesses. I, I I really like the concept of focusing on the mar not completely focusing on the market, but putting more emphasis on that compared to team. What do you think some of the other entrepreneurs out there can learn from that? Do you see other entrepreneurs making the mistake of not focusing enough on the market and focusing more on their team and other areas of the business? Yeah. So I, I, I generally f fundraising advice is, is hard to give because different investors like to focus on different things. Sure. I spent, I care almost exclusively about market and that is atypical. Right. Uh, if I were to guess, you know, among my peers, I would say, you know, 10% or less right. care agree. about market to the same degree that we do. Yeah. So providing generalized fundraising advice on what you should focus on in a fundraising meeting is, is difficult to do because other investors just focus on different things. Right. I would say the most general advice I can give is know who you're talking to and what kinds of stuff they like to, to do, what they've invested in before. And that can provide you know enough context so that you can kind of guide the conversation in the right direction. Well, I was talking more in in, in respects to uh, b other businesses out there, not necessarily people that are seeking to raise money, but other companies where they don't focus enough on the market and they're focusing on different areas of the company, and they realize that th there's no market out there, there's no market share for them because either it's a red ocean 
or just dissolved. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, day to day as a entrepreneur operating your business, I mean, there's only so much you can do to think about the market size and, and such. My job as an investor is to, you know, pull apart those claims. But if you've already committed to, to putting your, spending your lifetime there, mm -hmm. um, you know, unless you're having a, a kind of a more general strategy session of where should we focus session, thinking about the market is, is less important on a day-to-day -day basis for most entrepreneurs. Right. It's important to think about when you're deciding to enter a new market or to not enter a new market. Um, but you know, day to day, if it's just like, Hey, got to ship a product and make customers happy and stuff. I mean, like thinking about the market doesn't, doesn't really help you for any of those kind of operational things. Yeah. Awesome. Kyle, I've absolutely really enjoyed this interview. Um, and I've learned quite a few things before we wrap up. I like to ask each guest, do you have any personal high performance tips or habits that you do that you think is unique to your lifestyle in the way you operate that you can share with the listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, I am very cognizant of, of how I spend my time. I'm very fortunate that I work, you know, like I work from home. So like, I don't even have to get up and travel anywhere on a day to day basis. So I mean, basic things like that, but I actually say, I'll, I'll get really specific and mechanical on one thing, which is, uh, keyboard shortcuts. I, I think one of my superpowers is that I digest a tremendous amount of information every day, both, you know, emails from people, telegram messages, Twitter, blog posts, newsletters, just all kinds of stuff. My job is basically to digest information and then make decisions, right? So I, I digest a lot of information every day. And the only way that I'm actually physically able to do that is by literally navigating my computer as fast as humanly possible. Okay. Um, a general rule of thumb is you should never use the mouse. I, I don't mean that in like mouse, mice are bad or anything, but like, the, the level of dexterity and control you get um, using a keyboard is just infinitely more precise than a mouse. Okay. A mouse is obviously easier to use and you know click the buttons on the screen and stuff. It feels good, um, but it's just infinitely slower. So for general navigational purposes, I basically don't use the mouse at all on my wow, computer. Okay. Um, that means knowing the keyboard shortcuts for all the major applications, right. um, you know, both you know, Chrome as well as other apps. And obviously like within Gmail, for example, and that way I can simply navigate information as quickly as possible. The most important piece of software um, that I use that there's relevant to this is called Alfred. I think the URL is alfredapp.com. Uh, I'm on a Mac, it's, it's on Mac. There is equivalent software on Windows, but I don't know what it's called on Windows. And Alfred is basically I would say it's the command line tool, but abstracted to the UI level of your Mac. So for example, like if I want to open a block explorer and go to like a specific address, which is it's like, it's like a very weird crypto thing that I have to do on some frequency. Mm -hmm. I can just type in, I hit command space and the little, the search bar pops up. And then I just hit, uh, let's say BTC, I type BTC space, and then I hit paste command V for the address I want to go to. And when I hit enter, that, that will switch to my primary browser, which is Brave. It will open a new tab and it will take that address and put it in the search field for a, whatever block explorer I've previously, previously designated. Um, and so what used to be, you know, seven or eight or nine seconds 
of you know switching apps, opening the tab, typing it in. Like now I do it in a quarter second or half second. Wow. Um, and I've generalized this for every function basically that I do on my computer. Text expansion, keyboard shortcuts, um, web search shortcuts, you name it. Al Alfred is a very powerful and extensible piece of software and does a lot. And so I, like I use Alfred more than a hundred times per day. Yeah. Actually in the app itself, it has like a usage log thing. <laughs> it like shows you how much you use it. I use it over a hundred times a day. So super powerful piece of software. Love using it and strongly recommend it to all Mac users. Nice. That's a, that's a great tip, man. We're going to wrap up there, Kyle. Any final things you would like to say to the listeners? Let us know the best place they can find you at. Any final words of wisdom? Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm very active on the internet. Uh, my Twitter is just my name. So at Kyle Samani, K-Y-L-E-S-A-M-A-N-I. That's the best place to find me online. Uh, if you want to email me, just, just email me. You can guess my email address. It's not very hard. And uh, yeah, just ping me, ping me kind of anywhere on the internet. Awesome. Kyle, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us and the history of Multicoin Capital. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Listeners, we want to thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.